0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars Out here we is stoned, immaculate Hello and welcome, this is the C86 Show I'm David Eastall, as you know we love a special guest This week is going to be the turn of Cruella de Vil The band from Northern Ireland Because I recently spoke to Philomena Munza To find out more about life, love, poetry And all that other groovy stuff So anyway, you're going to find out much, much more About the band and the creative journey. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Philomena, over to you.
1: Well, my brother was the evil genius of the band, my brother Colm, He's a lead guitarist, a producer, and we um played together in the house. We had an eccentric house, we had all kinds of strange Records from the forties and fifties that our parents had, had. Some of them were American. Some of them were what we might call now novelty. There was uh, uh, Tom Lehrer, Spike Jones, and uh, we, and also old American folk songs, and I even think uh, Israeli folk songs. And we played them in the house, and you can hear some of them in the songs. A uh, uh, column, my brother. Yeah. Um, I remember he always wanted a guitar. He, his first, the first people I remember him loving were Focus. Um, he loved the guitarist from Mud. I think his name is Rob Davis. He really thought he was marvelous. We went to see a concert in Dublin and he was this part of Mud with a support act and he was influenced by him. Then he loved people like, Mark Bolan, he loved. We yes. had certain records we played. Mark Bolan was one big. Uh, then we played a lot of Roy Wood. And, of course, when Queen came along, Colum just found them very, very revolutionary. And from that point on, we, we were both writing songs and playing in the house and annoying the neighbours, no doubt. And then I went off to college in the States and Colin went on a different musical direction. And when I came back from the States, um, everybody, people who were in were people like Queen. And he just thought old image, first image, Freddie Mercury was great. Obviously, he loved uh Brian May. And we were very lucky when we signed to EMI, Brian May actually came and heard uh, the track Gypsy Girl, and he was very, very nice about it. And I think that was a high point uh, for Colm. But certainly the revolutionary nature of things like Bohemian Rhapsody, that was just such an extraordinary, extraordinarily original, inventive and groundbreaking piece of music. He loved that. Yes. But he always also loved Roy Wood. And we were lucky enough to record an album later with Roy Wood, so who was absolutely terrific and played all the drums and was very good to work with. So Roy Wood was a person. Mark Bolan was great, and of course and we had his record played to death. It was in the old days of records, you know. Yes. Uh, so those were some of the influences. And, yes, uh, well,
0: they're, they're quite a diverse lot because actually I'd forgotten about Focus because my brother had – Focus at the Rainbow that had certain tr- classic tracks like Sylvia and Hocus Pocus. With It was prog rock with yodeling, wasn't it? There seemed to be a yes. lot. <laughs> y- y-
1: <laughs> and I think what he liked was the guitar. So he yes. got a guitar uh, for, for Christmas and he applied himself to that. Yes. And Belfast, South Belfast was not a great place for um, being encouraged to play the guitar. Um, <clears throat> Uh, there was an, there was another guitarist who played, a lead guitarist at the same time as my brother in our school, which is a convent school, and they compared notes a lot. And, of course, there were two lead guitarists, so they can't play together, so they didn't. Um, the other guy got expelled for playing his guitar. Right. Went on to play with all kinds of people like Def Leppard and so forth. They used to swap gear. So there was that, and um, I remember our. We, there was not any parental support for playing the guitar. So what Colum used to do was to go, and it was freezing, but in those days when we had a cold climate, Northern Ireland was freezing, and he'd actually go back out to the back garden, throw his electric guitar over a wall, then leave the house, and then go around and retrieve it and go into a halls of residence near us and just practice for hours and hours. And um, he spent a lot of time playing in a very cold bedroom with the amp off and the uh, metronome going, and you could hear him, because he wasn't supposed to be playing. No. uh, You could hear him playing incredible liquid licks, and he really... Um, applied himself. So that was the kind of the beginning of the band. And when I came back from America, uh, we started recording together. I'd written Drunken Uncle John, and he wrote Two Dreadful Children, uh, which a few years back now, just recently, was on a compilation on the Billboard chart uh, that reached number one. Because that song... Uh, became a cult hit across America, was very well known and loved on a show called The Dr. Demento Show.
0: Oh, yes. Uh,
1: Yes, that's a very good show. And uh, so he was inspired to write Those Two Dreadful Children because of the writings of Saki, Hector Hugh Monroe, who wrote uh, a lot of classic stories. He was a Satirical writer who died in the trenches in World War I. Uh, I think his last words known were, put that bloody cigarette out. But Column loved those stories. And he wrote uh, Those t- Two Dreadful Children in a tribute to Saki. And in uh, not so long ago, uh, many, many years later, uh, he was behind Oxford Street. I don't know if it was Wigmore Street. But he happened to pass by the house which had the blue plaque where Saki, Hector Hugh Monroe had lived. And he sat down on the doorstep and he pulled out his guitar and he played that song through to thank Saki for that incredible inspiration. Um, So there was that. And then we did Drunken Uncle John in... um, a very small studio in the town that Liam Neeson is from, uh, Balamina, and we had a very good, I've forgotten the name of the studio, the the, the, uh, engineer who was local was called Mud Wallace. And we used to record in there. And then we used to run out and dash out to the branch line train and get the train back into Belfast. And of course, we were severely out of pocket doing this. Um, I remember when we were doing those two dreadful children there. Uh there's this, I don't know if you know the record, it starts off with a kind of a crazy chopsticks. Uh da da. da, 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 da. And just before we finished the whole track, that's the one that made it to the billboard number one. Yes. Um, Colm said, I think we should add a hello at the beginning of that track and we had our coats on. It was freezing in this studio, which had been a place for uh, raising turkeys. he said, let's go back in there. And they did the, introdu- the, the introduction, uh, they played it and we just suddenly burst in and said, hello. And then we ran for the train. So um, that was how things progressed. Um, and, Colin was picking up gigs around Northern Ireland with a band called Blazer, and he met two guys who became the drummer and the bass the bassist for the band. And we were lucky enough to we were there was a radio downtown station in Northern Ireland, and we were asked to do a session for them. Uh, there is a reason I'm telling you this. It's about Colin's ability. ability as a songwriter. We went in. And uh, some songs there, and they were put out on the air, and one was a very slow, uh, very nice ballad of affection from brother to sister called "I'll Do the Talking." And uh, a few days after that, the um, the uh, produce the the engineer at downtown rang back and said to Column, "You know, I think that song is a single." And it was, uh, we put it out as a single, and it did very well in Ireland, and our career started from that. But the point was that Column could go from, uh, as a songwriter, could go from like the psycho satire of uh, uh, Two Dreadful Children, to the goth beat of Gypsy Girl, to... A loving ballad. it was really identified as a Christmas ballad then. and um <clears throat> what was I going to say? Yes, it was identified then as a Christmas ballad and it still played at Christmas over there. But from that we got asked to, to appear on RT RTV,' uh, sorry, RTE in Dublin in the Republic, and uh, we had sent uh, a, a demo tape into EMI records and an A&R man came over to hear us there, and we uh, they they began to express an interest in us. And uh, then I think the focus of your interview is bands who have appeared on the Tube, isn't it?
0: Yes, well, t- Tube and John Peel, you know, so it was kind of that 80s period.
1: Sorry, the record of ours was actually the first track we did I wrote it, Two Dreadful Children. No, 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 sorry, sorry. Drunken Uncle John was like a crazy, um, I don't know what you'd call it. it, was almost a silent movie song in a way. Yes. Frantic With the pianos going, uh, you know, with making a soundtrack effect for the uh, very funny, violent storyline about this drunken Uncle John chasing his wife on the railway tracks and um when we we put that out we had that um released locally and it was sent to john peel and without us our pushing it at all um he played it on the show
0: that's right yes it and
1: was- um there was interest in that uh, a a a um satirical cartoonist heard it and actually did a cartoon layout version of it, um, which was very fun. So we did that. And, of course, uh, they picked up on that record. And uh, so where are we now?
0: Yes. So with, with when you got the band just together, that was kind of the late, was that the late, um 70s or early 80s that it was you... really
1: the early 80s. We got together quite quickly and we happened it, it it all happened quite quickly. Um what happened was the tube, which was a new show in um Britain, yes. was done up in the northeast of England. And I think it's quite well known by now that a lot of stuff that comes out independently through the north of England rather than through the Southern English Oxbridge dominated media down south um, can turn out to be really very good. There was a, you know, series that are very popular on TV like Wire in the Blood and Happy Valley. They're all done up north. So this was way the hell up in Newcastle that they were doing it. And I, don't, I think there may only have been four or five uh, shows Uh, Before we were actually on it, I remember the first uh, episode that went out and I believe Sting, who was I know Sting, who was the uh, North of England origin uh, singer songwriter in the police, um, was on, went on to do it. And I think it was the presenter Paula Yates early gig at being well known in her own right, rather than being a rock chick. Yes. And I remember that she came on and said, Tell me, Gore, tell me, Sting, do you think having the name Gordon held you back in your life? And he said, <laughs> Yes, Paula, I think it did. So that was it. Then it at that time there was an awful lot of interest in Irish music. You two were about two singles old yes. at that stage, I think. But really, it were ba- it was bands from Belfast like The Undertones and Stiff Little Fingers who made um, uh, an impression shortly before that. And you know what record companies used to be like? They always wanted to sign the new band that sounded like the band last year that had been a success. So there was a lot of signing of bands after that, like Ourselves, Uh, john mcdonald's the band the bank robbers so there was a great interest and a great buzz um certainly i don't know stiff little fingers but of course the undertones were great and um so i suppose on the back of that the tube thought well we'll do a whole episode a whole uh, what do you call it, program on Irish bands. We'll go over there. And it was Northern Irish bands they wanted to do then. And so they came over and they mopped up the town very professionally, uh, very quickly. They were an expert crew. At that time, Belfast was terribly, terribly violent. Mm. It was a very violent place to live. And the centre of the... The country was saturated with army presence who still couldn't really get to grips with paramilitaries of either side, really. I mean, they were doing a lot of things, but they were in the country a great deal. And the center of town was kind of there was a kind of a ring of iron around the center because there were so many bombs going off that um, you had to get searched. You had to stop at checkpoints and have your band uh bag searched by people before you could get into a certain part of the town there were barricades there were sandbags up everywhere um it was a very heavy time um i remember my father and brothers going to a disney film or something downtown right near where the hotel was that the tube crew stayed in and uh, there someone phoned in a warning for a bomb scare they came up, all came out stood across the street and my brother Column saw the bomb went off and my brother Column saw this the plate glass of a huge window blew balloon out like it was a bubble being blown but from a bubble mm-hmm. uh, machine and then it snapped back into place uh there were very sly and brutal murders and there were also very funny stories you know there actually was a bomber who sent a bomb uh, package to a department store and it had his return address on the package the package didn't go off so there was room for high comedy so the hotel that the the uh tube crew stayed in was called the Europa and If there was a Eurovision Songhost contest for bombed hotels, uh, the Europa would have come first. I remember us going down to see the Tube crew down there. And, you know, we had to get through incredible security even to get into the building. It had been uh, blown up so many times. So um, we were going to do the show. And we, first of all, our first thing to do with the track, which was Gypsy Girl. I was in London at the time, and my brother came over and played me the demo and thought that was very nice. So we arranged to record it in a big, well, it, it wasn't a huge, but in Dublin in a studio that was situated right on the Liffey. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm sure it's there still. <laughs> and I I flew in and he they all came down from Belfast. And I walked into the studio, uh, waiting room and I was there in the room and sitting across the room was this guy and he had booked time after us and was having to wait to, uh, to go on then till we did our bit. I don't think he got on to until midnight. And that was bon- Bono or Bono, whoever you, however you, um, you know, pronounce it.
0: Yes.
1: So I sat there. We, you know, we didn't know each other. I sat there like a stone and all of a sudden from the uh, control room of the studio came this enormous sound of the opening of Gypsy Girl, which on huge speakers was all those violins. Actually, my brother playing bow guitar. Uh, He didn't know. He used the bow on his uh, lead guitar and he um, he had seen someone I think it was Jimmy Page do this on on uh, TV but he didn't really know much about J- Jimmy Page's band but all of a sudden this huge sound of these I thought, God that sounds really powerful so we did it and then we we did the track we recorded it there and then we traveled up to Belfast and, uh, the tube didn't have any set rented studio. So actually on either side of Belfast, it's an estuary, a rather grim and bleary and beautiful, of course, estuary and with ribbon roads pointing out north and, sorry, north, north, east and southeast. And along that long road, there was something that's now the, the University of Ulster. It was a Polytech then. So we all went in. We had a, a room in there. They had the crew and they had the fold back and uh, they set about recording us. And the director was called Jeff Wanfer and they only had one cameraman and we would play and he was very agile. Uh, we would play again and again, and he would go all around us up and down and uh, taking each instrument at a time and so forth. Uh, and in that tuned video now, my brother does the most uh, amazing guitar break. He's such a talented guitarist, still is. And he points his bow, I think, at the camera. And what he was actually doing was trying to tell the cameraman that uh that's the end of my break so we went away and uh, as i said they went through the whole town very quickly very professionally and produced an excellent show uh meanwhile the <clears throat> the record company emi was showing interest in us and uh we went over to you know we went over to talk to them about signing And so that was all going ahead. And um, we checked in uh, to Newcastle to the Tube team. And they said, yes, you know, we spent a lot of time editing that film. And we think uh, that we're very pleased with it. We think you look very good. And so um, the record company, of course, said to us, we want to sign you. On the day that that show goes out, um, yes. Obviously, they didn't want any further competition, and so we signed to EMI.
0: Yes, God, that was quite. That was that was a very quick moment in the band, really, wasn't it? In the early years, because obviously there was you. There's James, isn't Stephen, and was it Mike as well? No, not
1: Stephen. It, uh, no, uh, Stephen had left the band earlier. Right. James Clenhan, Mike Edgar, myself, and my brother Colm. And that was the band.
0: Yes. And that was it. And, you know, again, um, during that period, I mean, you mentioned sort of, I remember now the yeah the 70s and the early 80s because there was an awful lot of um, bombs and bobby sands wasn't there there was that sort of whole oh yeah
1: he was somewhat after that but it was a very very ugly war and i guess people wonder did it produce good music because it was so terrible um i don't know there it is absolutely true That people from Northern Ireland, even when all that terrible bloodshed was going on, uh, on all sides, all paramilitary groups and so forth, people, I've never met a people uh, that loved music as much as Northern Ireland people did. Um, They just, there were so many good singers, and it was as if everything stopped for a three minute track. It was almost like, a Truce in No Man's Land. Yes. Um, uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, to give an illustration of that, the folk singer Don McLean, the American folk singer who was very well known for the song American Pie and also the song about Vincent Van Gogh, Vincent yes. came over and he played there in the Grosvenor Hall. And he had a very good audience there. And when he came to sing the song Vincent, which is a very beautiful song, and by the way, imagine thinking to write a pop song about Vincent van Gogh, a beautiful lyrics, beautiful melody. The whole audience sang in unison in beautiful a cappella, so sweetly to that whole song. It was a very mo- moving moment and that revealed something about the musical culture there
0: yes because there was there was a lot of i suppose with during that period of the 70s that we grew up with, and possibly the 80s as well, but especially the 70s when we would listen to the top 40 on the radio, yes. top of the pops, which uh, music would often hang about for months, didn't it? You know, a single would go into the charts at number 38 and then be 32 the following week and then 25. And then you'd follow this progression, but there were those classic songs like, you know, Seasons in the Sun or yes, the yes. Harry, Harry Nielsen's I Can't Live. If Living Is Without You, and those kind of very sentimentally it's, powerful songs, which I think they're, yes. they're sort of being ingrained in our DNA, really, haven't they? Because, yes, um,
1: songs that stayed at number one for months, like Bridge of a Troubled Water and somewhat earlier, I think, Hey Jude. There were songs that were real landmarks in music and yes. uh, to me, you were talking about Sweet and glam rock. and name, name some of those other bands of that time you were talking about.
0: Well, I suppose there was, in America, there was Alice Cooper who probably started it, but there was, I suppose it was like um, the Bay City Rollers, the Roubettes, yes. Shawadi Waddy, Sweet, Slade. Um, I suppose T-Rex, but I think he's a bit more classy. The same with David. Susie Bally. Quattro,
1: who's Susie playing Quattro. tonight at the London Palladium. On the 15th of November. I know she's Um, still
0: going. And, um, you know, obviously you couldn't move without gary glitter being there as well yes yes
1: they they'd all, yes. They'd, all,
0: they'd all be knocking around in the 60s doing various bits and pieces and it's interesting that you mentioned the mud because i did an interview with rob davies uh quite recently
1: because yes. he
0: because after mud he became one of these uh songwriters who would do yes. you know write music for people like kylie minogue and uh people like that or trying to have writing songs for people to cover basically so he's still going he lives in ibiza by the way so um there you go he,
1: he was over recently in london not that long ago maybe it was only a, a month Yeah, he, he my mentioned
0: brother, I, he mentioned that he was going to be coming over and playing a few a date in a small pub with a i can't remember who else was in the band but it was one of the another band that we grew up with and i remember thinking, yes. oh, yes
1: Yes. And what was great was my brother was able to go and see that gig. And my brother was able to bring with him uh, the program from the concert that we intended in Dublin back in the early 70s, right. which had Rob Davis and mud in it. Excuse me. <laughs> and Rob David signed it and seemed to be a shy guy. He was very shy. (laughs) My brother was able to tell him, you have had a tremendous influence on me um, and your playing and so forth. So, yes, I remember personally, after things that were just such classic, wonderful songs like, you know, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, when... Things came in like, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right, da, 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 dynamite. Mm. I thought, this is a travesty. This is so instant. It's so simple. It's not this great uh, poetry of the earlier generation, you know, where you had songs like Thunderclap, Newman, uh, the revolutions come and you know it's right. Yes. And then, of course, it was just a kind of something that I had to get written to and used to. And of course, looking back, all those people were absolutely terrific. You know, all yeah. those bands. Susie Quattro was great. Uh,
0: I think. I think they kind of tapped into that more rock and roll period from the fifties, sixties that they quite liked. And, and sort of added their own little twist to it and their little glam bit, whereas the singer-songwriters from people, you know, like you yes. mentioned, um yeah, Don McLean. But then there was Joni Mitchell, there was Neil Young, there was Crosby, Stills and Nash, there was J- Carol King. There were the, the singer-songwriter, and Laurel Canyon, that scene started to emerge in the sort of 70s as well. And then we had, you know, the soft pop world of the Eagles and then Fleetwood Mac in the 70s as well. So it was kind of an interesting time. And then there was prog rock and you mentioned focus, but there was also Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, which got very complicated Music. Well, and you've then, given
1: a very good summary. I must say, it's a very good summary of the progression of things, the problem yes, of things.
0: And then it was the sort of the birth of that heavy metal world of Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. Then there was, you know, the the band like Led Zeppelin that came about um uh, came, came about with Mothead. And then around seventy five, seventy six, there was that punk explosion with the Damned and Sex Pistols and the Ramones on the you know, American side of things. And then that sort of, st- that changed the, cl- the Clash, the Buzzcocks and, you know, the these sort of bands. And that sort of, there was that post-punk period in the late 70s, early 80s with Magazine, Gang of Four, Public Image Limited yes. as well, the Nightingales, you know. And then around the time that you, your band would begin to emerge, there was kind of the world of indie pop had begun and there was the smiths that happened in 83 that had a massive influence on their independent alternative scene. yes because yes. before that you had echo and the bunny man simple minds you too but they were always destined for major major stadium bands, stadium, stadium anthems i
1: mean that's stadium. not all they are but you you know i know what you're saying and, yes. the,
0: and the country estate with you know you know barbed wire fences and a moat you know they they wanted big they wanted big sales didn't they and big management whereas a lot of the indie bands never quite never got the management sorted and imploded rather drastically like the they,
1: but, they imploded but in some cases we always thought in our case that uh, we would have been much better uh, signed to an indie label um you know, to be part of a big corporation and and in very, very different times. Really, I mean, every band said, hey, ma'am, we don't have, we lost control. Um, But they were the source of funding. They were very generous. And when we left them, uh, they were very reasonable. They gave us back all our tracks, uh, which we valued. Yes. uh, That was very good. Um, But for instance... Uh, the, the person the you know after, the thing about punk to go back to that for a minute it was like an incredible wonderful plunge whirlpool because i came back from the states and it was in fully in swing and it was great because it was in a way amateur hour you know anyone could get up and do it and uh there was a there was a wonderful quality of amateurism in certain parts of British music then that you wouldn't have gotten America with these huge bands, you know. Yeah. You know, motor, well I think so highway did, bands.
0: So what um, period did you go to America? How many years was that? And what part of America?
1: I was on the East Coast and I got to see some very good bands. Uh Who did Brain Salad Surgery? um... An English band who made it huge over there called Renaissance. And I don't think they were much known of here, but they were playing huge gigs in America.
0: did, Did they do a song called Northern Lights with Annie Haslam in? Was she the singer of Renaissance?
1: God knows. I don't know. I saw the concert in Philadelphia. It was very good. But then to come back and have people doing singles like uh, jilted john gordon is a moron it was just so fresh after all that you know high kicking american highway rock and pro- professionalism um it that kind of scene as my brother once said to me you hear a guitarist doing these wonderful solos jamming and, and saying we threw away the rule book And actually, you look through the glass into the recording studio, and they're reading it all from, you know, a music manuscript, a proper score. You know, they're like uh, much more like Abbey Road, really great session musicians, and you you had that sense at that time when I came back uh, in '78. I came back that anything went and. Uh, we had so many good songs. Um, we did, always so
0: thought did, did, so because you mentioned uh, was it Brain Salad? I think Brain Thump. Oh, Emerson Lake
1: and Palmer. That's
0: yes, that was, so. That was very prog and and um quite unbelievable. So did you also because at that period in the seventies in America on the East Coast, you know there was the kind of you were, the punk was also appearing quite.
1: Oh you know, yes, yes, it was
0: so there. Did, you, did you go to like New York to CBGBs or Max's Kansas City at that stage?
1: I I didn't see them. No, I was in the Ivy League studying at university at Princeton and then followed that up by Yale. So right. My god. I was in um
0: Were you were you an academically gifted child?
1: Uh I did all right. You know, I, <laughs> yes, I suppose like we I did well and I got in there and uh our family was partly from the States. So that, that all happened, you know, that happened. Yes. Um, but I, I was on campuses where a few people might've tried to start a punk band. Actually, one of them uh, became a very well known is a wonderful R- Rolling Stone writer called Tom Carson. He's an American, but I think he had a punk band on campus, but, uh, uh, he had an amazing writer's career, but, you know, it, I didn't go see any of the music. Getting back to that indie scene, because you re- raised something that was very important. These indie labels imploded, but the bands sometimes did well. I mean, we were signed to this huge, uh, label and, um, there was a record that came out in our time. And it was, you know it, you turn me round, round, baby, oh round, yes, dead round. and alive, yes, yeah. And I think what happened with that record was it what came out limply, but the small company was so behind it that they pushed it and pushed it. And it made uh, a big success. And it was a very good song. If it was a one-hit wonder, it definitely deserved to be one. I mean, thank God for all the brilliant one-hit wonders that we have had. But in EMI, you know, if you didn't chart the second week, you were gone. And we had a most amazing story happen to us that relates to that original uh, recording uh, song on the tube, Gypsy Girl. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was... Uh, What we discovered about EMI at that time, uh, this is information that my brother has emphasized to me, was all the really talented bands there did what was called at that time a tape lease deal, which was you didn't really have a deal with the company. You had a deal whereby you uh, recorded tracks yourself and and then they took it on as they leased it. And one of the artists, for example, who did that, had that kind of deal, was uh, Kate Bush. Um, but, you know, Kate Bush was advised uh, to sing down an octave on Wuthering Heights. So a huge company can't do, sometimes can't do much for even its major artists. I remember uh, this was a, a story that happened uh, on in, in EMI and at that time was this incredibly world-famous artist, an incredibly world-famous artist. You would think no door would be shut to that person. Um, Had a single out. And uh, what sold the records then were a couple of shows. There was the 6 o'clock show on Saturday evening. I believe that was Noel Edmonds. And then for records like ours and so forth, everything was geared. Well, there was the radio play, Mm -hmm. but music videos were new-ish and hot. And uh, what you wanted, the record company, they said, used to pray for rain on the Saturday morning so that everyone would stay at home and watch those shows, see the music videos, and then they'd pray for sun in the afternoon so that um, the kids would go out and buy all the records. And um, this major artist, I can't tell you how big he is, I won't mention his name, but um, he had a single out and the record company presented it to the six o'clock show. And the producer said, all right, we'll play this video. uh, But only if, this artist comes on live and the artist said to the record company, I haven't been live on television in 20 years or something. I'm not going on live. To which uh, the producer said, okay, well, they're not getting on the show. So the huge star said to the record company, do something. And they said, there's absolutely nothing we can do. Mm. So he bit the bullet and he went on the show and they played his song. But that's where the power lay. And the record company has a huge raft of acts and is responsible to a lot of them. And they can't really, they couldn't really put put their foot down for even their biggest breadwinner. So that was something that happened. Now, we had a tube film of Gypsy Girl. And what we liked about it was, although it was a very cheaply made thing, there were big close-ups, they cut on the beat, and it was a very good film. Um, But we weren't allowed to use that. It was uh, ITV. And they said, no, no, no. We want you to do a big video. So they fixed us up with a director, and we didn't want this. We didn't want anything like this. But we met this person. He had done Eurythmics videos, so we thought, well, that will be good, won't it? Yes. Although, really, if you know Eurythmics, uh, what you think of uh, about them is that they really were doing their own videos they were really scripting and taking care of taking charge of the whole thing anyway he said at this meeting he said i see this as a video as a wall of fire we get an enormous enormous bonfire in the countryside and we'll put you on a stage in front of it and we'll film it that way and uh what we didn't like about his earlier films was he didn't come in close on the artists right but anyway emi spent uh, it, uh allegedly spent 80000 pounds on this video there were cherry picker cranes there were um catering vans there was crews of thousands not thousands but there were hell of yes. a lot of people and they shot, we shot a lot of footage and we did it all. And he put it together. It was edited together. And um, again, we thought it was a lot of money. It was very expensive looking and it had this fire in the background. But, <clears throat> you know, we thought the Tube film was better. Yes. And we had actually tried to be in touch with Jeff once, the director of our slot in the tube, and we wanted to use him and the cameraman, but we weren't able to. So what happened was the record came out in October, and when it went, the video, and you had to have a video, an interesting video to show on these kids' programs. And when they went to the BBC, to show the video. Apparently all along in the rule books, the video guidelines booklet that the video department of this multinational record company had said on page one, allegedly, people will not be shown next to fire because it's dangerous uh, for kids. You know, it's dangerous incentive uh, for kids. Add to that the fact that the the, um the what do you call it the, the record was the, the record was coming out the last weekend of October at Halloween and Guy Fawkes with all the fireworks. and they just refused to show it. So that was there we were the week of our record release with no video product. And I would allege we asked them, please will you spend 3,000 and buy the tube video so we can use that. And I would allege that they said, we won't do that. So it was uh, unshowable on British TV. I think we got to 78 in the charts without it because we got one, we got um, played on the breakfast show once. I remember it was a Wednesday. Um, And um, there is a thing in airplay where at that time, you go from C list to B list to a list, and you have to get to seventy five to be allowed to accumulate more airplay. so really, that sunk the record yeah and sunk us really we I mean, it was it, on. It, it,
0: it's a fantastic song. And I have to say the video with the fire does look very dramatic. You're in the at the front. Did you get very hot on that occasion? Because you are quite close to that fire, which is enormous, in a red dress. Uh,
1: no, it wasn't. It wasn't very hot, actually. No, because it was a cold night. Right. I seem to have some memories of... The problem was they had an enormous fire, and what actually happened was it burnt down very quickly. <laughs> yes. It really roared. So... um, uh that's what happened uh, with that. Yes. But nonetheless, uh, we went on and we recorded an album with Roy Wood. And uh, we really, really enjoyed working with Roy. He was great. And he did all the drumming uh, for us. And he was a wonderful producer. And, you know, when you're a band and you're not that sure in the studio... He stopped things like over precision, you know. He said the drums will cover it. Yeah. And uh, so that was a, and of course he was a very good drummer. So uh, it was very, very good uh, to work with him on that. So we have uh, those tracks. Uh, we have the album. It's um. Is this
0: the, is... is the album? Is this the one that has like? Do you know have Gypsy Girl? But blues, blues, blues. I'll do the talk in Hollywood. Hong Hollywood, Kong. Hong
1: Kong, swing.
0: Um,
1: yes. There were the... other, there were our, other songs. You can see them on YouTube. There was a ballad I wrote called "Who's at the Door." Yes. Uh, that's uh, if if you like ballads of that nature, you will think it's very good and uh, well sung. Um, and there was still She Wished for Company. That was another track. Marching, which uh, I I love personally as a track. I think you can feel Bell, um, Belfast in that. In yeah. I can hear the sound of marching. Oops, I've gotten that too low. Cl- I can hear the sound of feet. I can hear the sound of. And did you? And Leo, a... Familiar street.
0: And did you enjoy being in the band, you know, recording, writing material, occasionally performing?
1: Um yes, yes. Um it was satisfying. It was really my brother's brainchild. Um he he put everything into it and he produced things as diverse as uh, Hollywood, Hong Kong swing and simple ballads and sadistic goth rap rap. So um, it was really his band and his uh, way of doing things. He played the guitar so brilliantly at the drop of a hat. He did all the background cascades of vocals. Um, he did a lot of producing. He played the piano. Uh, he played the piano on Who's at the Door. It was disputed that he did that, but he actually did do that. So um, it was an incredible amount of work for him Mm. because he was playing so much and uh, producing so much and always at the desk and always practicing. Um, So um, it was a real, you know, he got to meet his heroes. He learned a lot and uh, he really enjoyed it. Um, I thought the behind the scenes stuff the business side of things was very interesting uh, as well you know all the things I've been telling you about record companies Yeah. so it was a real life's lesson mm. and um, you know we had many many experiences we uh, recorded in SARM studios where the band aid singles were done and uh we we were doing Hollywood Hong Kong swing there, and Sarm had the most incredible state of the art desk, but it kept breaking and breaking and breaking. And our original drummer uh, was more interested in schmoozing uh, music business business types than practicing. So he actually took, I think it was a day and a half to do one drum loop he was a very good live drummer yes uh, but it, it, we had to substitute uh someone for him when, and it was roy but when we went in there we were doing a hollywood hong kong swing and it was an incredibly lush studio every single thing in that studio was blue and i actually picked up a pair of headphones that had a tag on it saying A sticky on it saying rejected. Uh, Reason not blue. And the person who was providing food at SARM at that time uh, was actually a guy called a local West Indian guy, I believe he's West Indian, called Lucky Gordon, who was a big player in the Christine Keeler scandal. Mm. Um, And we had a very nice uh, engineer called Dave. Megan, he, the guy didn't sleep for days. I'll tell you what, it was terrible. We'd get to three in the morning. We'd have a deadline to produce the tracks at the record company for a meeting in the morning, and we just couldn't. Um, we just couldn't provide the goods that quick because um, I I can't tell you what all the gear was, but it did keep breaking. But nice. this guy Dave Megan, who was an Irish sound engineer, and of course, sound engineers are known for their tact and endless patience. They are <laughs> the most brilliant camels. Were in those days the most brilliant camels of the music industry. It had the place had been a synagogue, and he came downstairs one night. I remember, and uh, he saw a rabbi walk through a wall he mm-hmm. says uh, he wasn't on anything he was just totally exhausted so things like that were very interesting um yes yeah. and i'm very glad that my brother's great great playing is available online in on youtube and other places uh, all our tapes are uh in abbey road for storage Nice. That's nice. excellent.
0: Because is it cause just going back to something you were talking about later, um <laughs> talking about earlier, was this this thing about, you know, bands, especially in that late 70s and then in the early eighties, because cause a lot of the, the groups and musicians I've I've done these interviews with. I think at that point in the early eighties, there was such a lot of unemployment at that time. And there'd been you Know oh, nice. that, yeah, Thatcher got in in 79. Then we had the Falkland War, then we had the miners' strike. There was Greenham Common. We thought we were going to be, you oh, know, all yes. nuked, didn't we? Yes. And and then there was this, you know, like a lot of people, especially on the left of center, who were yes. the, the sort of forgotten people. So they were sort of signing on, and then the government brought in these schemes didn't they YTS. Yeah, the YTS but there was also the Job Seekers Allowance, the Enterprise Allowance oh, yes. schemes yes. and things like that and I think for a lot of people they just signed on and then they done you know the the Enterprise Allowance schemes and stuff and and you know just formed bands you know and with a certain limited kind of ability but with a lot of enthusiasm yes. would would often think well let's try and get a track played on the John Peel show and you know John Peel liked playing it quirky stuff yes. so it kind of suited a lot of people and they'd get the John Peel you know they get a play on John Peel which would absolutely knock their socks off and then they would get a John Peel yes. session at the Maid of Hale Studios with someone like the you know Dale Griffith who was the the drummer yes. with Mot the Hoople and that would blow people's mind and then there was that sense of oh we might as well do an album because there's all these independent labels that were around during the 80s especially. Oh they
1: were great they were great yeah they were Yes, I mean, I would rather have been with a small label uh, that had total confidence and pushed you with everything, with nothing to lose, than to be on a big, um, to be on a big, you know, record company. I, I would not do that again. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, people were able to do stuff. And what closed us down in the end was, uh, we actually, we left EMI, we released, we released, um, I'll do talk, the talking as a Christmas ballad. And we got so much more, um, coverage, uh, play airplay than we were able to ever, ab- a- sorry, ever able to get on a major label. Uh, so yes, I think those little labels, I mean, <clears throat> there are films being made about a few of them now uh, Yes, because they did something very valuable. But the re- the cost of recording was prohibitive. And certainly my brother and I were just joyful when we saw people, you know, the, 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 the digital age when <clears throat> people like the Arctic Monkeys, I believe, uh, got successful without a record company. Uh, wonderful. But then the trade off is you can get successful, but with streaming and so forth, you don't make any money.
0: No. Going this is back true.
1: to what you were saying about <clears throat> the 80s and uh, the terrible, terrible economic deprivation, you know, people said things like, I said yes to YTS to get the country out of a mess, and I'm a hero for surviving it. Um, people. Uh, Miles Copeland, uh, who was, uh, you know, a noted, uh, noted band, what do you call it? Manager. Yes. Uh, always said that what made England so creative was the Dole. You know, you could, you could rub along on the Dole and explore your creativity, you know, if you were talented and desperate enough. Yes, because um, I think yeah. you've
0: got something like £38, but then you get your housing benefit and council tax paid as well. And then obviously when you're sort of 18, 20, you know, you can make 30, you know, in those oh, yeah. days, £30, £40 pounds sort of just about stretched far enough as long as you didn't want to eat too many things. But yeah, <laughs> I know it was because Miles yeah. Copeland managed the police, didn't he? But he also started IRS Records, which was one of those rather interesting labels that featured... R.E.M. at one stage and then he signed lots of other bands, etc. So, yeah. Uh, I
1: don't know if he had, did he have XTC? XTC were a band who I thought, <clears throat> I forget who he had, but it was a saw at the time was if you signed with someone of that nature, they had, had their major band and they didn't really put enough into the other people until yes. they got their own huge corporation going.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, people like Rough Trade were like that. I think they were going along quite nicely. And then they signed the Smiths and the Smiths were the band who they, you know, took most of their energy. Did you, I mean, at that stage, it was kind of interesting with EMI, because I know, I did an interview with a member of the Farmers Boys who were from East Anglia. And they signed to EMI on the same day as Kachagugu, which was, they said, Uh, This was Mark, the bass player, said it was a very strange mix because they were nothing like Kajagugu, but you know, they had that great single, Too Shy, and they were just very, you know, pop fodder, really, weren't they? And um, so it was kind of a very mainstream label to have been sort of swayed by. Yes,
1: and we were, we had many descriptions. Someone described us as lightweight, heavy metal, the spinners on speed. uh, And, you know, we were kind of, we had some comic tracks. Uh, we were kind of goth, um, but uh, and so we were not the type. And when you think that when we were signed there, um, we had a very a, a very interesting A and R man who was a quirky and off center, and uh, he signed us. But at that time, uh, the big band was the Duran Duran. Oh, yes. And uh, there a Man was, you know, walked around. His nickname was based on his name. I think it was Huge Manly Cock was the <laughs> nickname anyway. But um, they couldn't have been more different. And, <clears throat> of course, they were in the time when you put a – Duran Duran had great songs, but you put a band on a huge yacht in the Pacific and their whole vibe, their whole brand brand is a later word, although it's getting quaint now. Uh you um you know it you could sell a band through a luxury video. They had very good tracks, but they were so different from us. Yes. Our AR man was a very quirky and he was a very nice person and in fact it was it was um a sort of a sign of his Catholic tastes that he actually spent a lot of time uh, putting together tapes for the uh, what do you call it the um, uh, Friday night EMI pub quiz.
0: Oh right, I got you. Recognize
1: yes. the track in two seconds. So he had um, he had an incredible appetite for all kinds of music very nice person but there again you see um when we were recording uh, our A&R man said to my brother we had the tube track for gypsy girl that was to be our first single yes. and um they EMI wanted us to record that again and again and again and they kept saying give he kept saying give me the master recording give me the master recording so they took that track and they had it worked. We worked on it here, there, and everywhere. Well, not that much, but we worked on a number of different ones, and it was never quite right. And one of the they brought in a couple of producers and um one of them just said to us, Well, I don't understand. Why don't you just why didn't they just remix the, the tube track and put that out? Mm-hmm. And um so, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I know that somebody once called doing too much work on a record. It was some huge star who said that that they ha- they had learned the lesson not to go turd polishing, right? You know. So it was quite confusing for my brother. Because of course the tracks like Drunken Uncle John, which were so good on the John Peel show, had been recorded in three hours. And then you had tracks in London at the most expensive studio in town, SARM Studios, with the, the, the 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 studio where the Band-Aid single was recorded, for example. Yes. And with this enormous equipment and recording all day and every day, all day and every day. And, uh, you know, when when people in big corporations don't have artistic uh, conviction in anything, um, they really don't have confidence in any music. Yes. They can't tell. and And they can lead producers very much astray. But working with Roy Wood cut through an awful lot of that you know yes it's Um, it's
0: such an interesting mix working with someone Roy I don't think I've on this show have ever come in come across anybody who's had that kind of collab you know collaboration or work with Roy so we were very
1: very lucky that he showed an interest Uh, it was my brother I think it was my brother who wanted to work with him we had the record was presented to some big names who were big at the time I don't know, somebody, Lily White, this and that. And oh, yes, Ray. Steve
0: Lily White as well. and uh,
1: uh... You know, so um, we were not going to be their choice, but Roy was interested. Roy came in and we worked at DGM Studios in Holborn, which is a very nice uh, underground studio. And he was just so experienced and he drummed like hell and he really took on. So it was one of our glory points to work with Roy Wood. It was really excellent.
0: Yes. And did you, I mean, at that stage, obviously, for me, the the 80s, I mentioned sort of things like the post-punk period, but then, you know, the early 80s, you had the New Romantics, that electronic cyber people like Depeche Mode and... Um, Art of Noise, and then there was the Goth scene with people like, so I suppose, Alien Sex Fiend and the Cure, of the Cult, Susan the Banshees. Then, kind of went into a, a an indie pop world between, you know, with bands like the Smiths. But there were also all these other bands like the June Brides and Yeah Yeah No and yes, the Pants yes. and 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 you know, the Wedding Present appeared. Did you did you sort of? Want to be kind of part of that scene because you know as that as the eighties progressed, there was things like the political movement with Red Wedge, which was the you know uh, very exciting thing with you know people like the Redskins and Billy Bragg and um yes, yeah, the- very
1: very successful and a very rich contribution to the scene. We weren't being political, um, I think to a good extent we we shared their political viewpoint. Um, but you know that wasn't our thing, and quite often uh political bands or people uh who are in that area, if your music isn't political then they don't want to know um we we did feel uh rather Outsiders because um I know one thing what happened what's that? that uh, band, the Thompson Twins. Oh, yes. Um, we met them in that famous gig, uh, John Henry Studios on Caledonian Road. It's the was the big um, centre where bands rented rooms to rehearse for shows and tours and so forth. And we ran into them and she kind of said, What's so odd about you is you don't wear your stage costumes off stage. And uh, we put them on for a performance. Yes. We didn't really live a a rock and roll lifestyle. Um, We, you know, we drank beer. Yes. Uh, I've since become a heavy smoker, but... um, we we weren't into drugs really, and uh, so my brother loved people who were really had an image and lived the rock and roll lifestyle and were on the scene. People like David Bowie. I mean, I remember saying uh, my brother saying to me recently that he was watching closely a video of David Bowie. And really, when you looked at, he said you could freeze frame that on any shot of any second, and David Bowie looked like an absolute star in every shot. He liked that, you know. He he really valued that because not only was Colum a brilliant musician, a good satirist, uh, mm. writer of lyrics, and a fantastically liquid accomplished vivacious guitarist but he had great technical interests in recording and film and the way bands and people presented themselves uh so he he really liked that but we didn't really identify ourselves as part of it i mean um there were some people you know our big our big uh, striking experience um of the music business wasn't the brutality of the scene itself it was actually the fact that people we'd known for years as close relatives and friends uh suddenly became hysterical with personal of, ambition um when uh we got this deal um was I just saying before that I wanted to say something important about that uh, oh yeah no the music business um what we discovered was um if you're in a uh, a business like that there's what I'd call a shark line I mean everybody's a shark yes but there are wonderfully able sharks um wonderfully able sharks and if you don't get above that line, you were stuck with the most incompetent and embarrassing signal. Uh, uh, sorry. People helping you. We had, um, we had a marketing manager, and I don't know if you've seen the video performance of Hong Kong Swing, but when he was asked to design the sleeve, and in those days, things like the sleeve rather than the Instagram post were really, what you know, very important. Yes. For that song, he came up with a crude drawing, a cartoon drawing of a hand holding a Chinese takeaway. Saying nip in to get a Chinese meal or a meal, a taste of a takeaway of Hong Kong swing. It was mm. totally embarrassing. And this was going to be, uh, forced on us. So there were, there are a lot of experiences like that that you have. Um, you don't get the good photographers. Uh, you don't get the, the good photographers. You don't get the good, uh, marketing people. Um, the, um, the, the people who were very good for us at EMI were the, publicists mo was the lady she was lovely and brian munns was another one and he was very expert as well yes uh, uh, really depended where you were in um in uh, with relation to the shark line i mean it's very hard to know what's going on there was a very well-known producer who came to our gig at the hippodrome not a producer sorry a manager oh yeah i remember his name He was called Billy Gaff. Mm. And I don't know if he had managed Rod Stewart, um, but he took some deal at our time. I think there were uh, some band at our time. I think they were called the Roaring Boys. And he got them an amazing deal. Uh, And uh, he came and was very interested in us. And he went down to EMI asking questions about us. And all of a sudden he disappeared and Mm. uh, we don't know what happened then we think other there was a chance that other people who were quite close to us wanted to be the managers and managed to put him off that was Mm. the thing that happened um how did i get into talking about that there was a reason
0: Um, (laughs) yes well you were talking about sort of the i suppose the murkiness of the the kind of industry sort of because obviously it sounds a bit like this the creative side which you enjoyed and your brother especially enjoyed and then there was the sort of navigating the world of the label the studio the manager the producer all these kind of other factors which can be difficult
1: yes yes it's it's very difficult but um there were people, I mean, w- you would expect it. You know, there was some guy in a r at EMI and those tapes you left with me, he was an American, a short American. He said, God, I love that stuff. And then we heard it in the, the meeting. He said, can't see it happening. Oh, yes, that's what I wanted to tell you. Um, music week at the turn of the year, uh, pr- people in the industry, experts were asked who they thought were going to make it, and they said Cruella de Villar band. But I think at that stage, uh, you know, the record company couldn't have cared less, really. Yes. Uh, a,
0: it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because there were there were so many quirky bands in the 80s, which I, you know, I sort of still you know, listen to and think, wow, that's that's extraordinary to hear. Things like the Frank Chickens that John Peel played, or yes, yes,
1: John Peel was great.
0: He was just very good, and you know, he would create a really good show, which was very sort of all over the place. So, did you by the mid 80s, then sort of 85 was everybody, were you and your brother just had enough of being in the band? Well, I mean, no,
1: how- it was in those days, no. We hadn't uh, um, had enough. I would have. I uh, would have kept on. You know, as a, you know. I didn't want to be a star, but you know, when you have a difficult system like that, it's part of your was part of my nature to fight on and on. But it was the simple economics of recording. You know, just too expensive, and we just couldn't afford it. Um, I think my brother was obviously the most talented of all of us. I mean I wrote some good songs. Um but uh it's really basically that, you know. The the reason in those days I and mean, in uh, bad t- uh, in in uh difficult economic time for Britain, it seems like a nightmare now looking back. Mm. But um if you didn't get someone to give you the recording money then you know you had to pay it yourself and it's very expensive it's so great now you know the industry i mean the media now you know you can make a film on a 700 pound iphone you could make a feature film um everything has become much more doable um and you know You don't, in a sense, you can do it at home and it can be a hit. So that was great. Um, What was harder for us was we we expected the sharks in the industry. But uh, personally, um, it was, as I said, people close to the group who became or in the group who became hysterical with personal ambition uh, and to leg on. Um, We had... Uh, someone who was in the band who'd been a very very nice friend for years and as soon as we got to EMI he started dressing all in white and going down to the record company and sucking up to uh, executives and buying the secretaries' little fluffy toys on their birthdays exactly what you don't want to do but um Was became totally out for themselves. Another was a sort of uh, a sibling of one of the bands who came and uh, we were very, very, very fond of, um, but had had a tempestuous relationship uh, with my brother. But the day that the recording contract was signed, more or less, he hadn't spoken to my brother for two years and he um begged he made up with the Monot day and begged to come to London with the band and did. Lived in the band house, uh rent-free, bills free, came to all the recordings, all the taping of television shows, uh every record company party, every showbiz party, and uh even we even got this person um Recording time to do some demos through EMI. And, you know, they went to every record company, pop quiz, um, brought their girlfriends to live in the house. And then when things went wrong for the band, uh, this individual rediscovered his tremendous hatred, uh, of my brother and was a really Iago. And I think when people do that and they're so close to home and they have legged so much, I mean, it was very silly that we didn't see that person uh, correctly uh, at the start. I think that was really worse for us than anything you get through the scene. So that those two people who turned out to be very ruthless and were so close to us, they were a problem. What we did have is, uh, great memories of the experience of doing the recording process, uh, being appreciated by lots of different people. Um, working with Roy Wood was a joy. And, uh, we had so many good experiences, uh, like that. And of course, those tracks and most of all, my brother's compositions and playings, playing, is out there permanently uh, in the ether, the internet ether, Mm. uh, forever. And of course, when the band broke up, remember, there was no internet. There was no sense that um, the music would endure uh, other than people flipping through old singles in two or three rough trade type uh, shops in uh, London I mean Rock trade by the way I should just mention that they were very good they um I think they distributed drunken Uncle John which was was something they'd done for us but we had no sense that there was going to be this incredible digital capture of the whole 80s of whole 80s, 90s 70s eras of pop and people talk about the dangers of the internet it is a very dangerous place but it also has preserved a lot of wonderful uh, music. Uh, And if I can go back to One Hit Wonders, we were not a one hit wonder, we were a non-hit wonder, but um, we we owe so much in in our musical uh, collection Galaxy to all those wonderful one-hit wonders, goo to Shy Shy, yes. there are loads and loads and loads and loads of good songs out there, and um, it's a very happy note to end on. That uh, it's still all out there and it's still living on.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, yes, uh, it's always it's always a bit hit and miss when things finish. and um, But for yourself, did you, I guess you were kind of, it was easy for you, more, more easy to sort of walk away than probably your brother. Did you then, did just, you navigate? What did
1: I do next? What did you well, do Well, the first then? thing I did was I went, uh, I had been a playwright and a writer, and one thing I learned, and particularly then was, and this was before Amazon and any of those things, was that, that the book form, one thing about it is it's terribly compact. It's, uh, you can control everything stylistically. And so I went on into independent publishing, uh, which has been absolutely marvelous in this country. I wrote novel, I wrote a novel, I wrote uh, a band biography. And I I had a natural, I discovered I had a natural talent for promoting independent books. And there are some companies like Turnaround Publishers Services who bring in all the odd books to to Britain and they can afford to. uh, They brought they can do publish, they can distribute a book. Buy and distribute a book, much like Rough Trade, like the trailer trash cookbook, but they can also, uh, do very valuable political books, um, and they can give a chance to, you know, novels like mine, um, that are indie in, in aspect. And they, in a terribly difficult time for publishing, they, um, they kept that whole world diverse. I can't tell tell you how many books were published in the indie sphere of publishing of uh, these compact art forms you don't need a producer and studio time you know uh, a lot of the black fiction the baby father series um dot nadao's company uh, express yes. you know um. Lots and lots of, and some of the books that they publish rather like a rough trade, uh, kind of a distributor published. I meant to say distributed have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize in publishing. So that was my, that was my wise take on it was do something where you are doing something, um, that you can control all the elements yourself. And yet it is. An orchestrated art form like um, um it's an orchestrated art form. I'm flagging a little bit here. Yes. My brother still records, he still practices, um, and he's interested in going out and playing. Um, but um, you know, personal betrayal did hit him, uh, make him very wary. That brings me to one thing that has changed in the British music scene, and that is the absolute death and genocide of the pub band scene. You know, all the venues are gone. When we were around, you could go and play in a a pub on a Saturday night. You know, Coldplay got discovered in a pub behind Camden Hard Street, not on Camden Hard Street, but, you know, it was totally... a densely populated city of venues, but most pubs can't afford to make the costly, um, uh, you know, changes, health and safety changes, fire changes. So all that's gone. I did hear that uh, Tony Blair, I think th- th- these th- changes came in in his time. Um, uh he went to Dublin and said, what a flourishing music scene you have here. And someone said something to him like, yeah, just like the one you effing destroyed in Britain. <laughs> uh, so um, there aren't that many places to play, but yes. he's interested in playing. And uh, other bands, have, there's a, an American band called Sex Sextus who approached us and asked, asked to re. Uh, the permission to record uh, Gypsy Girl. And uh, they did a very good cover version of that. So um, there are things going on. Yes.
0: Did you? Would you want to sort of archive your work a little bit more than it is at the moment? I mean, I know you've got bits on YouTube, but I just wondered if there's ever been any plans to sort of really get it all nicely repackaged and released, or is it just the case that you just want to leave it there? uh,
1: Well, I think, you know, we would be wary because it's an enormously intricate scene and it's very, very difficult. Um, A fan in Denmark, a very stalwart fan called James Taylor, was providing... uh, album material to people I, and that was very very good of him but uh no i think it's fine i think yes. that um my brother would like to play on his own i mean with other people um you know we were none of us as accomplished as he was and he deserves to play you know i think he play he wants to play with his uh, on his own and he has put out tracks under other names so he's still active that way and of course it's great you know we have deals on cd baby and people like that that bring in royalties and um and uh, that's uh just fine for us at the moment but i'd like someone like you know first rank band to call my brother and say hey let's that's Jan, you're a really good guitarist. That's that's my wish for him. But as to whether he would wish the same thing, um, I don't know. I can't say. Yes. So.
0: Well, it's kind of interesting because I've read a few books, you know, I've read Morrissey's biography, and um, I think Boy George has just got another one out, which is quite uh, – Yes. Yes. I mean, there's, a, there's a, I think when you're the artist at the front and you're a quite a sensitive person – being in a band and the industry, there's a creative side, and there's the the bandmates that, as you mentioned, don't always end well. And then there's the industry. I mean, it's not really something that you'd recommend to many people, really, is there?
1: Yes, I had prob- I had previously worked for a star. I won't say who, and I don't want to say who, mm. but um, at, at the top of their success in music. Um, they had nothing to do with our starting out in the band or anything to do with us. We did all that in Ireland. But I wasn't that impressed by what it gets you, you know. And look at Freddie Mercury, the Bohemian, who's a completely different person, but um, who um, uh, was such a wonderful person. Um, When he became famous, attached himself to some very destructive personalities. And so I didn't see from that point of view
0: um,
1: that huge stardom uh, increased your own ability to... I'm not talking about beginning to believe your own publicity. I'm not talking about that at all. It's just you seem to lose your, your understanding of what the people around you are about. And, you know, the, I was amazed at, you know, the obs, the absolute gold diggers that couldn't be recognized by some of these people that I knew, pre, you know, in the time. Yes. And uh, Freddie Mercury came under uh, destructive influences, I believe, I would allege, you know. So um, it's a very nice memory. And my yes, brother, and I, I have to. I have all to. Time. And
0: it is. I must admit, I've loved listening to the music, and um, it's been. You know, it's such an interesting. I mean, it's forty years ago now, but it's such an interesting sort of take. Like you said, it has that. Um, I can. You know, when you mentioned right at the beginning about your the influences of the band, you know, these kind of some really quite off the wall quirkiness that kind of slips in, which is yes we
1: really enjoyed that of course some of it is so extremely you know extremely satirical that in this day and age um you know it would never get off the ground so yes that was something we were able to contribute and thank you so very much for appreciating it yes appreciating all my brother's well, absolutely. No, talent. it's
0: it's 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 been fantastic. I mean, because you also, I mean, you wrote a book on Coldplay, didn't you? Look at the stars. Was that?
1: Yes, I wrote a book on Coldplay, and I actually took the commission before I realised that they didn't want, at that stage, a um, any biography. I think they were two two and a half albums old or something, so there was no cooperation. Uh, but I was already well into it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that was that was very interesting. I don't know if I'd do another rock biography. And um, so it was not an official or a sanctioned uh, biography, but they were not hostile. They were not negative. They were not. It, it was fine. Um, and I tried to put some original things into it um, as well. Um, Yes. What made
0: you go for for Coldplay? Had you been a fan at that stage?
1: No, not at all. I wanted to do a rock book and I had worked very successfully for the company in promotional areas because I also did PR. And I think they were around at the time. And I did listen to their music again and again and again and just tried to to describe uh, my reaction. Uh, you know, my reaction to it. I had a positive reaction to their music. And um, uh, so that's why I did it. I was less happy when I realized that they didn't want to, um, to you know, anyone to write a biography. But uh, I was pleased I listened to it. Um, and, you know, I like Chris Martin's voice very much. And I always thought this is this is off the wall, if you yes. like. But I always very much wanted him to do a cover of Gilbert O'Sullivan's song, first song. Nothing rhymed. I think that would be a great song to do for a charity benefit. It's quite a serious song, and it's a beautiful melody. It's uh, rather fractured the way. Gilbert O'Sullivan sings it, but it's got beautifully wise lyrics, and I think it would um, suit his voice very well. Um, and they were, of course, all accomplished musicians. They yeah. had that going for them. So, um. so you've done since since the
0: since that period in the eighties and being a band, you've done a lot of promotion for other people, and also you know PR and as well as writing. A lot, a lot as well.
1: Well, yes, I enjoyed the writing. Um, and uh, promoting other people is uh, very, very good because I I am like an indie record company. I know what it's like when the people promoting you don't really believe in you. And so I've always done um, the best I can. Um, there was a wonderful time in music book publishing when all the virgins were open all over every everywhere. And actually I was given a job to, at the time of, uh, the title, I'm telling you this because it is interesting in a way that I was able to achieve this. I was given the book to promote a book to promote the Leonardo DiCaprio album, which Plexus Publishing published. And, um, the film up until about a week before it came out, had had contemptuous publicity. And when it came to be out, it was the most enormous hit. Uh, and what I did was I called around every single record uh, uh, music bookstore in the UK. And I got 20s and 30s and 40s of that book very quickly into every store. Because one of the things I liked about music, music business with the, the EMI was what they called going out on the cars. I was flown up to Glasgow and I went around all the record shops with the rep. And I thought that was very interesting. And in a way, nobody could stop you calling all these virgins stores, not people. And uh, the book went to number six in the Times bestseller list, and they say that was all due to me. And uh, so um, I'm not saying I was amazingly for that book, but there were a lot of projects that I was involved in that I really was able to put my heart into because – i think uh the rough and tumble of a music business if you have a heart uh and empathy it really you know it really really speeds up your empathy because in those days what would happen in the music business is um <clears throat> wednesday morning the new chart was released for the week and if you charted or climbed the record company called you at nine o'clock and told you your chart position. So you could often be there waiting for a call, and by two minutes past nine, you kind of knew you had it. Yes. And you'd had it. And then by five minutes past nine, you were sunk. Your your um the future of that record was sunk or whatever. And um, I began to be very, very, very interested in believing in people and doing everything I could when I encountered uh, what they were doing. I mean, I did things for myself. My novel got a very good review in in the Sunday Times, and it sold well through W.H. Smith. So uh, I was not self-abnegating in uh, doing that. Uh, But uh, I kept my own, but I also became very interested in helping other people as much as I could. Um, And sometimes in PR, calling 12 times, 12 times to try and get the coverage, you know, and you're risking a smack in the face. So. Yes.
0: Yes. It's, a, it's an interesting one. I mean, yeah. So what's your kind of project for next year? Have you got anything on the horizon for 2024?
1: Yes, I do. And I've written a film script and I've finished it. And I've also drawn a lot of storyboards for it. And I'm about, it's a kind of a a, a, a ghost story. Uh, It's about, um, it's set across two times. It's based on a successful 1920s novel called Still She Wished for Company. And Mm. actually one of our tracks in the band was, uh, by my brother wrote, was inspired by the book. But it's uh, about an 18th century young lord who's tried everything, been everywhere, and is totally bored with his own time. And he has a naive, frail, but also kind of shrewd, odd younger sister. And he realizes she's psychic. So he starts to use her to try to meet a woman in another time. And the conflict is uh, by using her, he could destroy her. Uh, And will he or won't he finally go through with that? And uh, then there's A Part In Another Time. So it's quite an interesting premise, and it features out-of-the-body experience. And that's not often, the way I'm doing it, it's not often uh, done uh, in film so far yet. Yes. Uh, so um, that's something I'm just about to start pitching to people, and that's where I am.
0: Hmm. Amazing. And you said your brother is kind of hopefully, well, might be making more music and playing making
1: He's still making music. He makes music under uh, another name. He puts out tracks and he gets his royalties there. And um, it's very, very good to him for him that he has this endorsement uh, in past years of the work he did then. And uh, he's had a very good. Uh, life, he also did a lot of social campaigning for an issue, uh, where he got enormous, uh, satisfaction and recognition. So he's also expanded into another area, but just like Rob Davis of Mud did, he still goes back and he practices his guitar every day. And, uh, you know, he's still as good as ever. And, uh, yes. I'm very pleased for his sake that he's living the kind of life that he wants to lead, and music, and media plays a large part in it. So uh, that's the thing I'm happiest about.
0: Yeah, you sound very. Um, you're you're still very close to your brother, aren't you?
1: Well, I don't see that much of him. We live on the other side of London, uh, but um, I I want to use this interview. To praise what he has done, unlike other people who betrayed him, uh, very close people who betrayed him, um, he has won that victory, and I want to put an emphasis on that. Uh, and his music has persisted in the scene now, and it will persist on forever.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you and just on a personal level, if you if you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self starting out is there anything in particular that you would have thought yes that would have been a really good thing to have known or someone had sort of just give me a little bit of a nudge in a direction
1: hmm, with regard to music you think or just guess, all, yeah. all
0: just life really yeah. as well
1: no there are many mistakes i've made but i don't think that i would do things differently um i I was always torn between sitting and trying to create and also going out and seeing the world. and I was not completely a person who should sit and write. and uh, that became more and more evident to me. and uh, that's really all. I don't have any great w- words of wisdom uh, for that um,
0: and we, and when yeah. you see and when you see your I mean, they're very amazing, Your the videos you did with the band. Does that always make you kind of smile, seeing such a kind of um, incredibly – I mean, because video was very uh, – that was the very early years. I know we had a few in the 70s with Bohemian yes. Rhapsody. But, I mean, there weren't – the birth of videos and MTV were just happening, really, wasn't it? I mean, it was very new. And to have got such kind of dramatic videos for the band and your singles, I just wondered when you watched them – if it makes you smile?
1: Uh, It's nice to see them, you know. uh, It's nice to see them. I mean, I guess the only thing that I would say to my 16-year-old self is get in a time machine and move to the 2020s because all those things you can do uh, on a shoestring now and look great and so forth. Uh, The the problem, we were very lucky to be given money and exposure and so forth, Um, but it was also very expensive then uh, to look good. Unless you had a team like the Tube, Jeff Warnford, the director of that piece and so forth, uh, they did amazing things with one camera in a crummy room and and made it look good. We were lucky to have had the venue, and, you know, there are loads and loads and loads of bands out there who are really terrific. um, Yes. Who um, didn't quite break through, and I sort of wonder why they didn't, but um, I'm still thinking about them, and people are still thinking about uh, Cruella de Vil. Yes.
0: Well, I know. Well, it's it's um, amazing. You know, it's an amazing sort of sound. And, um, yeah. Thank I, you
1: so much. And thank you so much for inviting me on your yes. show.
0: Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been amazing. I'm so pleased. Yes, and, uh, thank
1: you. Thank you for approaching us. And thank you for appreciating what we did then. Yes. And um, I think it's the first interview I've done in, uh, oh, since the band, really. So uh, (laughs) thank you for the opportunity. You've made made me a star again.
0: I know. This is great. But look, thank you ever so much. And um, yeah, I'm really, really pleased that... um, Oh, look. I'll I'll hit pause now, actually. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much to Philomena for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive, please. And positive and groovy and all that other stuff. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and probably some others. But anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.